0: Good morning, and welcome to the Cato Institute and our conference on the state of the American criminal justice system. My name is Tim Lynch, and I direct Cato's project on criminal justice. We have a great program uh, in store for you today, experts from uh, the Academy, experts from our police departments and our court system, uh, and expert legal practitioners. I want to thank my colleagues, uh, Matthew Feeney, John Blanks, Trevor Burris, and Adam Bates for the planning and logistics that uh, made this event possible. Uh, Before our guest speakers deliver their presentations, I just want to take another minute or two to lay something of a foundation for our proceedings. But before I do that, let me ask those of you who came with cell phones if you just take a moment now to quickly double check and make sure that they are silenced as a courtesy to our speakers. Yeah, we include panelists on that. Sometimes we've had accidents up uh, here. Thank you. Uh, truth be told, when we started to formulate ideas about uh, what to cover and uh, uh, the topics to cover for this uh, conference, uh, we did not anticipate a Trump administration or a Justice Department run by the senator from Alabama, uh, Jeff Sessions. Uh, given these events, I'm quite pessimistic. Myself about uh, reform prospects in the federal system. Uh, I'm afraid the weather outside today, you know, cloud, cloudy, rainy, dreary, is uh, perfectly captures. I think the grim policy climate uh, for criminal justice reform, at least here in the nation's capital. What am I talking about? I'm talking about you know the commutations for nonviolent drug offenders. Uh, that we've seen over the past year. That's going to come to a halt on January 20th, I believe, uh, when Mr. Trump uh, moves into the White House. And instead of the slow winding down of the drug war that we've seen, uh, it's quite possible, very likely, that we're going to see another escalation in, in the drug war. The militarization of American police departments is something that we've been writing about here at Cato for years. I'm afraid that's probably going to continue, uh, the flow of weaponry from the Pentagon to our local uh, civilian police departments. And the power of federal prosecutors, it's likely to expand even further uh, in the next few years. I'm afraid I don't see much in the way of good prospects for civil asset forfeiture reform, mens rea reform, or addressing the problems in the area of forensics. I wish it were otherwise, but it seems to me that we have to be realistic about what lies ahead. Fortunately, most of the action in our criminal justice system is administered at the state and local level. And that's where uh, we've seen, actually, most of the reform momentum over the past few years. And I think there's good reason uh, to be optimistic about the prospects there in the near future, whether it be sentencing, policing, or the improvement of uh, prison conditions. I look forward to hearing what the others have to say about opportunities or strategies for gaining ground and improving our system. I hope you'll take advantage of uh, the fact that we've brought experts from around the country (laughs) here uh, to Cato today. Uh, Take advantage by asking questions uh, after they deliver their formal presentations and during the breaks today uh, during the conference to pick their brains and and get uh, some of their expertise. I thank you again for attending, and I hope you enjoy the conference.
1: Uh, Thanks to Tim Lynch for those opening remarks. Uh, Somewhat uh, pessimistic uh, view of of where we're going to be in criminal justice over the next year, but that's what. Uh, We're here to discuss today is is, uh, the state of the criminal justice system and what we can do about it. Uh, My name is Adam Bates. I'm a policy analyst here at Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Uh, We're trying to keep a very brisk pace, so I'll just get right to it. Uh, Our first panel is going to discuss incarceration, uh, especially the the costs and consequences of incarceration in the United States. Um, As you may know, the United States incarcerates more of its population than any country on Earth. Uh, It seems unlikely that Americans are simply more criminal than the rest of the world. Uh, So to get a handle on this problem, we need to look at uh, the policies that have created uh, this phenomenon, Uh, whether we're talking about the harshness of sentences, mandatory minimum sentences, uh, incarceration for nonviolent offenses, or so on. Uh, So I'm ecstatic to be joined in this discussion today by three guests who are doing great work on incarceration in the United States. First, we'll hear from Mark Maurer. Mark is the executive director of the Sentencing Project here in DC. Uh, He is an expert on sentencing policy, race, and the criminal justice system. He has directed programs on criminal justice policy reform for 30 years, and is the author of some of the most widely cited reports in the field. He's the author of Race to Incarcerate, detailing how sentencing policies led to an explosive expansion of the US prison population. Uh, Our next speaker will be Kevin Ring. Kevin is the vice president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and I understand that in January of 2017, he'll be taking over as president there. Uh, He began his career in Washington DC as a legislative aide on Capitol Hill. Uh, As a lobbyist, he became one of the top lobbyists in DC. He is the author of Scalia's Court, a Legacy of Landmark Opinions and Dissents. He's a graduate of Syracuse University and the Columbus School of Law uh, at Catholic University of America here in DC. Our last speaker will be Keita Haynes. Keita is a public defender. Uh, In Nashville, Tennessee. She's from Franklin, Tennessee and graduated from the Nashville School of Law in 2012. Uh, In addition to the knowledge that Keita has gained through her professional experience, she also has firsthand personal knowledge of the criminal justice system. In 2002, Keita was convicted in federal court of aiding and abetting a drug conspiracy. Uh, Thanks to mandatory minimum sentencing laws, she was sentenced to serve seven years in a federal prison camp. After several appeals, she was resentenced to five years in federal prison, of which she served four years and ten months. Upon her release, uh, Keita received her Master's in Criminology and is currently working on her LLM through Stetson University. All right, so each speaker is going to aim for about 15 minutes, and after they're done speaking, we'll hopefully have some time for uh, questions from the audience. Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to our first speaker, Mark Maurer, thank you. Thank you.
2: Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks so much for inviting me here. Uh, thank you for the kind words in the introduction. I've come to appreciate the importance of getting the introduction right. Um, Adam mentioned my book, Race to Incarcerate. And when the book was first published, I was giving a talk at one of the bookstores here in Washington. And a newsletter went out promoting the talk and said Mark Mao will speak about his new book, Race to Incinerate. So we can talk about that as well. Um, I can't say I disagree with uh, the perspective of Tim and Adam on on what's ahead for us, but I'd like to remind all of us that Uh, Criminal justice reform has never been easy Uh, for several decades now as we know we've been uh, Entering and now deeply in the era of mass incarceration. That didn't happen overnight. It was many policy decisions many decisions made by Practitioners at all levels of government uh, that got us into this situation that we're only beginning to try to get out of now so uh, Yes, the challenges are substantial, but um, you know we we know how to deal with challenges, and I hope we can make the best of it. Um. When we talk about mass incarceration, uh, there are many ways that we can try to assess its impact. Uh, uh, Many scholars have looked at the relationship between mass incarceration and crime. To what extent has that helped to reduce crime? Uh, Many questions about cost effectiveness. How do we spend money in the justice system? What kind of results do we get? Uh, These are all important questions. I think we have a good uh, base of knowledge about much of this. These days Uh, but along with mass incarceration has come really a whole new set of questions uh, what we generally are calling collateral consequences that have taken on much deeper meaning uh, in this era we've been in the last several decades Uh, book I co-edited we refer to these as invisible punishments and invisible in several ways first the recipient of the punishments, uh, in many cases, most cases not even aware that this is part of his or her punishment for a crime until these kick in. Uh, they're invisible in the courtroom when a judge is sentencing somebody after commit commission of a crime. Uh, there's no mention made. Indeed, many practitioners don't even know about the consequences that come along with a felony conviction. Uh, And until relatively recently, they've been invisible to the general public society at large. It's only in recent years we're beginning to talk about these at all. So I want to try to lay out uh, what I think are some of the lessons learned or what are some of the themes uh, about uh, the collateral consequences of convictions and incarceration. And It seems to me there are four main themes that that stand out in this new era of collateral consequences. Uh, First, some of these collateral consequences are longstanding in our history, but many of them have been very consciously adopted or expanded in recent decades in the tough on crime era. Secondly, uh, there is arguably a public safety rationale for some collateral consequences But most of them uh, not only don't provide public safety, they're counterproductive to public safety. Uh, Their goal is punishment. If there is a goal at all, they certainly don't relate to any of the traditional goals of sentencing what we're trying to accomplish. Third, uh, even though some of these consequences have been in place for a long time, in the year of mass incarceration, their scope is dramatically expanded, goes well beyond just the individual with a conviction, but his or her family, community, and I think our larger society. Uh, And fourthly, collateral consequences have had a particularly disproportionate effect on low-income communities of color. And these are consequences that were entirely predictable at the time they were enacted had policymakers chosen to explore this. So let me just say a bit about each one of these uh, ideas. Collateral consequences in some cases are long-standing uh, restrictions on employment. For example, uh, certainly there's long been a stigma attached having a criminal record; uh, it hurts uh, your prospects employment. Uh, but long-standing restrictions too on licensing, employment occupations that you're excluded from, and the and the like. Uh, Restrictions on the right to vote go back to the time of the founding of this country. Uh, The United States was founded as this great experiment in democracy, which it was, but it was also a very limited experiment. Uh, At the time, the estimates are about 6% of the population was granted the right to vote. Essentially, wealthy white male property holders granted themselves the right to vote, women couldn't vote, African-Americans, people who were poor, illiterate, and also people with a felony conviction. So these laws go back 200 years or so. But we've seen in recent decades lawmakers, certainly in Congress, but in most states as well, adopting very consciously new policies uh, to have an even more punitive effect on people with convictions. Uh, 1996, the federal welfare reform law contained what at the time was a little-noticed provision requiring that anyone with a felony drug conviction would be subject to a lifetime ban on receipt of welfare benefits or food stamps. Uh, This provision received exactly two minutes of debate on the floor before it was voted on, one minute for, one minute against. Uh, It applies to felony drug convictions, no other conviction. Uh, Similarly, public housing restrictions, the one-strike-and-you're-out policy, uh, giving public housing authorities the right to evict people around criminal convictions. Uh, Even in cases like the grandmother whose granddaughter was selling crack cocaine off the premises of the housing complex, and not to her knowledge, the grandmother was evicted along with the granddaughter. Uh, Restrictions on financial aid for higher education for people with a drug offense. Once again, the drug offense triggering that. This has changed over the years, but essentially targeting drug offenses and only drug offenses for restrictions on financial aid. So a lot of it piling on recent decades. Uh, Second point, has to do with public safety. Is there some sort of rationale for why we've adopted these policies? Well when it comes to the area of employment, one can make an argument that in some cases uh, there's a reasonable approach. Uh, Someone who's been convicted of being a pedophile, most people wouldn't want that person working in a daycare center. But somebody's been convicted of stealing a car and now can't get a job as a cook in a fast-food restaurant, it's certainly hard to see what the public safety goal or strategy is in something like that. Many of the employment restrictions are extremely broad-based and you'd have to go back and be a very sophisticated historian to understand where they come from. So many states have restrictions on uh, getting a license to be a barber or a cosmetologist. You know, is there something about being a barber and access to a razor that's somehow public safety? It's It's hard to imagine, right? Uh, 1994, part of the major crime bill also cut out the use of Pell grants for higher education courses in prison. Prior to that, there had been hundreds of prison programs around the country. They were completely decimated after that decision. Uh, Not only does this not advance public safety, but clearly it's very counterproductive. A broad range of research shows us that more education leads to, contributes to less recidivism. So, not a public safety object there. The impact of mass incarceration also extends well beyond the individual with the conviction, and again, his or her family and community. Uh, We start with the families, the children of people with convictions, now more than 2 million children with a parent in prison or jail on any given day. These children are living with the loss of financial support, psychological support from their parent, the shame and stigma that comes from having a parent who's behind bars. Uh, This is not a very healthy way to raise our children. Um, Looking at family formation, parenting issues as well. Uh, A colleague of mine some years ago did an analysis here in the district Uh, looking at neighborhoods of high incarceration that send high rates of people off to prison. And he looked at the gender ratios in those communities and found that for every 62 men in the population, there were 100 women in the population in those neighborhoods. So where were the missing men? Well, some of them were in the military, some of them had died, many of them were behind bars. So if we think of the consequences for family formation to to parent, family, households, and the like, mass incarceration have a very dramatic effect there. Uh, uh, Another extension of how mass incarceration affects these consequences is the right to vote. Uh, As I mentioned, these policies have been around for more than 200 years. But with mass incarceration, the numbers affected by it are dramatic now. You know, The right to vote has always been an important issue, a question of democracy and participation, even at lower rates of incarceration. Today, you may have heard we had an election last month. Six million people did not vote in the election, not because they didn't care about the outcome, but because they had a current or prior felony conviction that uh, prohibited them from doing so. Uh, so at levels today, not only is it a question of principle and of democracy and who who is a citizen has the right to vote, but it's quite likely affecting real electoral outcomes. Uh, the most dramatic example would probably be the historic presidential election 2000, where we had a national election decided by 537 votes in that one state. On the day of the election, there were an estimated 600,000 people who completed their sentences yet still couldn't vote. Now, if Florida had not had such extreme policies, how many would have voted? Who would they have voted for? We can only speculate about that. But clearly, we may have decided the outcome of the election based on that. Finally, uh, mass incarceration collateral consequences had a very dramatic effect on low-income communities of color. Uh, think about the felony drug ban, access to welfare benefits, and food stamps. Uh, there's no shortage of documentation. That shows us the racial disparities in drug law enforcement, who gets drawn into that. Uh, we also know that uh, the felony drug ban is not of great concern if you're middle class or a so-called drug kingpin who's not dependent on food stamps to get you through hard times and the like. Uh, We see again with disenfranchisement policies, the laws go back very far. In the post-Reconstruction period, many southern states tailored their laws with the specific intent of excluding black male voters by defining which crimes would result in disenfranchisement. In states like Alabama and South Carolina, if you convicted of beating your wife, you would lose the right to vote. If you convicted of killing your wife, you would not lose the right to vote. This was the sort of convoluted racial logic and law enforcement logic of the time. So this is, I think, a sort of grim picture. Uh, The good news is there's progress in challenging, addressing, educating about these consequences. And let me just mention a few. Successes of recent years. Uh, On the felony drug ban, yes, it's a terrible policy, I think. But Congress did allow states to opt out of the ban. About three quarters of the states have opted out in full or in part. So the impact is not as severe as it could be. It's still irrational, just not quite as impactful. On employment, we've seen many jurisdictions, states, and counties, and cities adopt ban the box policies. We've seen the EEOC adopt a guidance for employers uh, several years ago, basically saying to them, you should not make use of an arrest that doesn't lead to a conviction. You should examine the relevance of the conviction to the job at hand. And you should look at the recency of the conviction. Somebody who got out of prison yesterday may be a different public safety risk than somebody who got out 20 years ago and has led a clean life since then. Uh, On the issue of fines and fees, I think many of us uh, probably didn't appreciate the scale of what this does to people until the Ferguson report came out and subsequent documentation how Jurisdictions were using these kinds of policies as a means of generating income uh, when, they were, uh, when they had no other source of revenue. Uh, clearly in Ferguson, all the other cities, low-income people of color stopped for all kinds of things, uh, clearly with a very direct intent just to have this impact. So we have seen uh, advances in recent years. I think it's been encouraging. There's more understanding of this. Uh, It seems to me, in the broad sense, uh, as is true of mass incarceration, so it is for collateral consequences. Uh, The reason we have these policies is not because we don't have research on what would be a better public safety approach, but it's that we've developed a very punitive political environment in which for many years legislators try to outdo each other on how tough they could be rather than how much they could promote public safety. We've been starting to turn that around in recent years. I think we need to do is to continue to work in a climate that's not Uh, focus on punishment for punishment's sake but expanding opportunity which will naturally lead to greater public safety outcomes so we have our work cut out for us for the next four years Uh, we have to look at the uh, job at hand and I think we can continue to make progress Uh, we just need to Change some of our strategies and tactics, but the bulk of the work is the same we've been doing for many decades. So thank you very much again. I look forward to our discussion.
3: Thanks to the Cato Institute uh, for hosting this event. Uh, Tim, Adam, it's nice to speak with Mark and Keita. Uh, I'm especially grateful to be at the Cato Institute because FAM was founded 25 years ago by a Cato alum, Julie Stewart, who had, uh, whose brother had just been federally prosecuted for growing marijuana, which seems stranger today. And I want to thank Mark for opening with a really comprehensive and excellent overview of the problem, which is the topic of this panel, because I'm going to get smaller and more personal with some uh, first-hand observations. I've thought about the issues that make up criminal justice reform a lot over the past 20 years and I've had the unique opportunity to see them from very different sides. In the 90s, as Adam said, I worked on Capitol Hill as a tough-on-crime Republican staffer, both in the House and the Senate. I worked as a counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee, drafting drafting anti-crime legislation, really bad anti-crime legislation, as it turned out. Uh, I then observed the legislative process from a different perspective as a lobbyist. Ultimately, my work as a lobbyist brought me under federal scrutiny, After two trials and appeals, I was sentenced to serve 20 months in federal prison. I spent 15 and a half months at the federal prison camp in Cumberland, Maryland. My bunkmates were mostly guys serving long sentences for drugs and guns. I was released last April, spent two months of home confinement, and I'm halfway through 30 months of probation. Um, But before I was indicted, eight years ago, I started working at FAM. And I continued to work there during my trials and returned as soon as I got home from prison. Before I had joined, thanks to my time cooperating with the government going through that process and as they tried to make cases against members of Congress and staffers who I knew well, and me, I learned a lot about the enormous power the federal prosecutors wield. I saw how important it was to have an independent judge who could referee what quickly became an adversarial relationship. And I realized how dangerous it was for prosecutors to have that power, and then on top of that, to have power over sentencing, which is what mandatory minimums give them. But it was working for FAM that exposed me to the toll that prison-reliant policies have on real people. Now keep in mind, again, I came from a law and order mindset. I did not, and I still don't think that being tough on crime is a bad thing. I certainly don't think that people who break the law are victims. FAM is not the Innocence Project. Everyone that we profile and that we advocate for um, did it. They committed crimes, sometimes serious crimes. But that was the problem I saw, was that while only some had committed serious crimes, they all were being punished as if they had. There was no sense of proportionality. Gone was the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. I was reading story after story about men and women, mostly men, mostly men of color who served, or were still serving, absurdly long prison sentences. And at first, my cognitive dissonance would kick in. There must be something I don't know. These folks did something more that's not in the files that we have for them. Um, and because I'd, been, I'd worked in the government, I'd been a member of the establishment, I needed to believe that the American c- criminal justice system wouldn't produce the outcomes that I was now seeing. Early on at FAM, I read about a young woman named Stephanie Knott, She lived in Mobile, Alabama. She wasn't married, but had three young children when she agreed to sell crack for a friend who had moved into the area. Stephanie's case triggered all my biases, explicit and implicit. This was a case I was predisposed to dismiss. A young, black, unmarried Alabaman, I'm from Connecticut, with three kids she couldn't afford is selling crack. I didn't know anyone who shared one of those characteristics, let alone all of them. And I grew up Catholic, so I believed if you did something wrong, it was usually your fault. Uh, If something bad happened to you, it was your fault. So everything kicked in, and I was ready to dismiss a case like that. And even though I had troubles of my own, I separated myself from a case like that. But then I learned more. Stephanie had only helped her friend sell drugs for one month. One month. Then her boyfriend was under investigation, gave up Stephanie's name. She was indicted. She had moved away with her family, away from the area after that month. She was indicted, had to come back. She was arraigned. She was told she was a conspirator, and would be held accountable for all the drugs this guy had sold during the course of his business. She wasn't a lawyer, but she knew that she wasn't responsible for all those things, especially the things that happened after she was gone. And this was her first offense, And she had three kids and was pregnant with another. So she went to trial, and she lost. In place at the time were mandatory minimums and mandatory guidelines that were tied to those minimums. And so Stephanie's judge gave her the sentence that corresponded not to her minor role or her short involvement in the conspiracy, but to the quantity of drugs her friend and others had sold. So at 23 years of age, Stephanie was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison. Soon after Stephanie got there, she gave birth. When the doctors cut the cord and tried to give the baby to Stephanie, she refused. She expected to spend the next 25 years away from this child of hers, and her emotions started to kick in. She was so scared to hold this baby because she, would know, she knew that she was going to have to give it right back, and so she didn't want to take it. So for you parents out there, try to imagine that. It boggles the mind that anyone in government, let alone involved in her case, could be a party to such a massive miscarriage of justice. But here's the thing about Stephanie's case. The US Attorney's Office that prosecuted her was run at that time by a guy by the name of Jeff Sessions. Stephanie's case was one of dozens I read about when I first got to FAM, and they blew my mind. These were not choir boys or girls. All had made mistakes, but the sentences made no sense at all from a public safety standpoint, let alone a moral or economics viewpoint. But Stephanie's case stuck with me. I reached out to her in prison, and I started to correspond with her. I wanted to bring more attention to her case in the hopes that she might get a presidential commutation, which at the time seemed unlikely, or that we might convince the US Sentencing Commission to reduce the guidelines for crack-related offenses. I wrote some op-eds for her, and with her input, wrote some that were published over her signature. I told her that I was in the midst of fighting my own battle with the government. We tried to lift one another's spirits. We talked about our kids, mostly, and were worried about the impact our troubles would have on them, which, Mark alluded to. After mistrial was declared in my first trial, I was convicted on half the counts. At my second trial, I was headed to a sentencing hearing. Government had asked for four and a half years for the kingpin in my case, the leader of the conspiracy. They turned around and asked for 17 to 22 years for me. Like Stephanie, I had exercised my constitutional right to go to trial. And as a result, I was being punished for it. Fortunately, unlike Stephanie's case, there was no mandatory minimum. The guidelines were now advisory. And so my judge, who knew the case better than anyone else, having sat through it twice, uh, sentenced me to 20 months. And so though I had learned such worse cases from working at FAM, I was devastated at the prospect of being away from my young daughters. It was Stephanie, who at the time had been sitting in prison for nearly 20 years, who wrote to me, asked me what sizes my girls were, and told me that she loved to shop, and that if she got out first, she would buy them dresses for the holidays. I always think about that when I hear someone say that all people serving long sentences in federal prison are scary, dangerous people. Ultimately, FAM and others were able to convince the US Sentencing Commission to lower its recommended guidelines for crack offenses. Then Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which lowered crack sentences even more. So in 2011, after serving 21 years in federal prison, Stephanie Nod was released to go home. What's interesting is that one of the leaders in pushing for the Fair Sentencing Act was Jeff Sessions. He had sent a lot of people away under that law, and he might have known better than most the impact it was having. Some have viewed that support as a sign that he's open to additional reform. I'm with Tim. I happen not to share that optimism. Working at FAM, while going through my trials, Reading about cases like Stephanie's and meeting others who would come into the office who had served unbelievably long sentences taught me quite a bit about the human toll of incarceration, but I learned more than I wanted to know when it was my turn to actually go to prison. I saw how much the guys were hurting being away from their kids and their wives, and it was nice to see their loved ones hanging all over them in the visiting room on the weekends, and I came to believe a lot of the conservative and liberal narratives about prisoners and sentencing were simply inaccurate. That's a talk for another time, though. But my time in Cumberland confirmed my growing belief that many people are serving sentences that are longer than necessary to protect public safety. They certainly were not of value as a deterrent. The idea that most of these offenders knew the punishment they risked and then conducted some cost-benefit analysis that included a consideration of the risks and rewards before violating the law is laughable. These were not rational actors, where none of us are really rational actors. It's little wonder that every reputable criminologist now believes, with regard to punishment, that swiftness and certainty of apprehension and punishment is more important than severity of the sentence. Swift, certain, and short punishments are understandable and would have been much more meaningful to the people with the traits I saw in prison. One reason I think the lengthy sentences can be so counterproductive is because prison infantilizes people. I rarely hear people talk about this point when we discuss the human toll of incarceration, but I think it's important. Everything we did and everything we needed was on campus. Inmates had very few responsibilities. Within a couple years, people start to become institutionalized. They know what it takes to get by day-to-day in prison, but they lose all sense of what it's going to take to get by on the outside. So while some people absolutely deserve prison time, Our goal should be to give them as little as is necessary to accomplish the purposes of sentencing. Get your pound of flesh. If you can get it for two or three years instead of 10, that's in our interest. Because it's incredibly important to keep in mind that while people are in prison, the world does not stop. Technology advances, job markets change, their skills atrophy, children age and stop seeing their incarcerated loved ones as an authority figure, spouses and partners bear burdens alone and often move on, Guys I served in with had no idea what an iPhone was. They'd say, what's an app? They might not know. They might have been the most job-ready people when they went in, but now they've been sitting on a shelf, serving decades in prison, in an incredibly infantilizing, anti anti antisocial environment. And then we wonder why the recidivism rate is so high. We really need to be mindful that 90% of prisoners are coming home someday. And we want them to be successful for their own sake Um, if not for their own sake, then for ours, because we want to live in communities that are safer. Which leads me to my last point. Evidence of the human toll of incarceration is overwhelming and can be documented, as Mark just did. We know what it does to kids, families, and communities. We have a Republican Speaker of the U.S. House who will tell you how mass incarceration contributes to intergenerational poverty. We We have the numbers. It's undeniable. But not everyone will be moved in the same way. For the human toll of crime is overwhelming, too. 700 people have been murdered in Chicago this year, and we're not done. Prison costs a lot to taxpayers, but so do robberies and Ponzi schemes and other crimes. So as advocates, I would say, especially as advocates in this political environment, we need to be willing to meet people where they are. If we want to reduce the harm caused by an over-reliance on prisons and excessive prison sentences, then we have to build support from new voices for reform. You go to enough conferences in cities like this and you begin to believe everyone supports reform, and they don't. I think reasonable people can be unmoved by cases like Stephanie's or dismiss them as outliers. I think you can reject the whole idea of mass incarceration on the grounds that you don't know what the optimal level of incarceration is. You can believe that racial disparity in prisons could best be addressed by locking up more whites. You can dismiss arguments about the high cost of incarceration by talking about the high cost of crime. And you can believe that preservation of order is the government's highest responsibility. So you can reject all of these common arguments and still be persuaded, though, in my view, to support reform, but only if we address your concerns. And every poll I've ever seen says the most important thing people want out of the criminal justice system is safety. So while reform advocates tend to focus on the justice in criminal justice reform, the public is mostly focused on the criminal in criminal justice reform. They want less crime. So to win broader support for reform, we need to know, we we need to meet people where they are, and we need to show them that we value what they value, which is safety for their kids, for their communities. And I would just say, fortunately, we can do that. Because many of the reforms we support would not only restore balance in the constitutional system created by our founders, but they would likely increase public safety, which is why we must push for reform, no matter if the crime rate is rising or falling, and no matter who holds political power at a given moment. Thank you.
4: Good morning, everyone. Um, My name is Keita Haynes, and I just want to first, I would like to thank Cato for inviting me here to this event. Um, I am a public defender in Nashville, and every opportunity that I get to speak about criminal justice reform, I take it. So when they called and asked me if I'd be willing to come here and to share my story and to talk about criminal justice reform, I said, absolutely. So as I mentioned, um, I am a public defender in Nashville, Tennessee. And every single day, I go into that courtroom and I fight for justice for my clients. But 10 years ago, actually it was 10 years ago, December 1st of 2006, I was 00017011. That is a federal inmate number. For three years and 10 months, I was triple zero, 17, 011 for a crime that I didn't commit. At the age of 19, years, age of 19 I was a sophomore in college, majoring in criminal justice. I met a guy, and we dated off and on for a few years, and so when he asked me if I would accept packages for his family business, I didn't think anything of it didn't realize that there was something wrong with that until my sister was arrested and she was under investigation by the federal government for selling marijuana. Um, So it was a really, really long investigation. Um, They actually considered me a target of the investigation. And at that point, that was when the dehumanization of a young African-American female who had never had any exposure to the criminal justice and who was college educated began. So just imagine what happens to my clients who don't have an education, who are homeless, who are poor, when the government convenes up on them and seeks to charge them with offenses. Um, I was harassed by the government on a daily basis for nearly two years. They came to my house. They came to my job. They contacted family. They contacted friends. I lost jobs, I lost friends, um, and the government even threatened to take my little old Mustang that they said that I had bought with proceeds of drug money. Um, when they came to my house to arrest me, they brought a SWAT team. Now, you you guys see me. <laughs> um, and so they brought a SWAT team. Um, they had a whole perimeter set up in my neighborhood. Um, And they even had helicopters flying over. And they came to the door. They all had SWAT gear. And they came and they had guns drawn. I was not there, but this is the story that my mother and my grandmother relayed to me. Um, So in an attempt to actually scare me to plead guilty along with the other 28 people that were indicted, um, the US attorney, he filed a motion to detain me. I was held in a facility that was in Kentucky, right outside of Bowling Green. And two days after he filed this motion, he withdrew the motion because he knew that my attorney was going to be out of town and that I would continue to sit in custody for an additional five days before we could get back to court. Um, They threatened me with 10-plus years in federal prison and so on simply because I chose to exercise my right to have a jury trial. Um, I refused to plead guilty for a crime that I didn't commit. Um, During my seven-day jury trial, um, left with nothing else to prove their case, the government fell back on the whole notion of that I should have known. So quickly, a show of hands, how many of you think that being in a home with both parents is a good thing? Okay, pretty much everybody in here. Okay, how many people think that graduating from high school is a good thing? OK, and how many people think that going to college and you know doing well, never having any exposure to the criminal justice system is a good thing? OK, well, like most of you here, um, I thought that was a good thing too, but the government didn't. All of those things that we just said here were good things. They took those things, turned them around, and used them against me in their case. And the judge bought it, so much so that at my sentencing, after I had been acquitted of six charges, She told me that any person of my intelligence should have known that I was dealing with something highly illegal. And at that point, she sentenced me to seven years in federal prison. And um, so in 2002, I graduated from Tennessee State University with a degree in criminal justice. Two weeks after that, I had to report to federal prison in Alderson, West Virginia. after my case was appealed several times, because like I said, I exer- you know, exercised my right to go to trial. So the first time my case was appealed, we appealed it to the Sixth Circuit um, Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, Sixth Circuit was a little confused as to what was going on when they said that the guidelines were no longer mandatory. So this was around the time when Booker and Fan Fan, you know, when the Supreme Court issued that opinion. So the Sixth Circuit actually, first, they actually granted my appeal. Then they denied my appeal. Then they granted it again, and then they denied it again. It's crazy. So we ended up having to appeal my case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court granted the appeal and remanded my case back to the Middle District of Tennessee. So at this time, I'm thinking that okay, this finally won't work out. I'm finally gonna go home. Well, no, that didn't happen. Um, when I got back to court, the judge tells me that um, because of the mandatory minimum sentence and guidelines that I think you've heard, you know, Kevin and you know, Mark speak about that she could not send me home. I had a five-year mandatory minimum sentencing guideline, So she resentenced me to 60 months. And at that point, I think I had to go back to prison for another 18 months at that time. So at the age of 28, I was finally released from federal prison. Um, on December 1st of 2006 after serving about three years and 10 months. So I don't know if any of you people in here are familiar with the federal system, but there is no parole in the federal system. So you serve 85% of your time. So 85% of the five years I was resentenced to was actually the three years and 10 months that I ended up serving. Um, Once I was released, three days after I was released, I um, was employed as a law clerk for a criminal defense attorney in Nashville. Um, as I mentioned, I went to law school and I graduated law school in 2012 and I was sworn in as an attorney in Nashville. But I, I, I say that. And when I say that, I recognize that, um, I am blessed and fortunate to, to be in, in the position that I am because there are so many people who aren't, um, my clients for one, they're not, they don't have the same opportunities that I have. And I'm reminded of this every day when I go into the courtroom and when I see that African-Americans are over police in their communities. And as a result, there are more African-Americans in the criminal justice system. There are more African-Americans whose rights are violated, more African-Americans with criminal records, more African-Americans unemployed or underemployed, more African-Americans living in poverty, and more African-Americans who are disenfranchised. It is with this knowledge coupled with my own personal experience that drives me to go into the courtroom each and every single day to fight for my clients in an effort to make sure that they, too, do not become casualties of the criminal justice system. Thank you.
1: All right, I'd like to thank our speakers for a great panel, especially Kevin and Keita who shared very personal stories. Uh, We have plenty of time left for uh, question and answer, so I have an announcement I'm ordered to read. Uh, Please, for Q&A, please wait to be called on. Uh, Please wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and and watching online uh, can can hear your question. Uh, Please announce your name and any affiliation you have. And as part of longstanding Cato policy, please have your question be a question with a question mark at the end. Uh, so, I, before we get to that, since we have time, I'd like to uh, exercise the moderator's privilege and ask the first question, uh, primarily to Mark, but to also to anyone who has wants to opine. Uh, skeptics of criminal justice reform, uh, such as Senator Tom Cotton, uh, may would argue, uh, hasn't the increase in incarceration coincided with a decrease in violent crime in America? Uh, can it be argued that locking these people up and putting them in prison for so long has actually uh, kept people safe? And I was curious for your thoughts on that.
2: Well, it's a complicated question. Um, Yes, incarceration has had some effect on crime, some effect on violent crime. Uh, I think there's uh, very substantial evidence now that we are well past the uh, point of diminishing returns in terms of public safety for what we get out of uh, the use of incarceration. I think this uh, is the case for several reasons. Uh, one is we have uh, an enormous number of people serving excessively lengthy sentences. Uh, one of every nine people in prison today is serving a life sentence, some with parole, possibility, some without the possibility of parole. Uh, many of these people are 25 or 30 when they went to prison. Prison for a serious crime uh, are now turning 50, 60, and more, and certainly not the public safety risk they once were. Uh, Certainly in the drug war, uh, again, no shortage of documentation showing us that, uh, yes, there are some so called kingpins behind bars, which may have some short term effect on drug supplies, but uh, arresting tens of thousands of low and mid level people in the drug trade just requires creates opportunities for them to be replaced. So there are a number of reasons why violent crime is going down. We don't understand it completely, but uh, incarceration has a modest effect on all of that. I would just say it's the world of two data points.
3: Um, You look at the crime rate in the late 80s, um, early 90s, crime rates high government passes tougher sentences above the federal and state level, and so you see the crime rate fall, and you see incarceration rate zoom, and that's the end of the story. And if that, the only two data points we had in the history of uh, human knowledge, there might be more weight I'd put into that. But if you look at the 70 years before that, the incarceration rate was basically flat, crime and crime rose and fell. And then if you look at what happened like 10, 15 years ago where states started reforming their sentencing laws, repealing mandatory minimums, reforming mandatory minimum laws. If what was being proposed was accurate, then the crime rate should have started to creep back up. Instead, it fell, continued to fall, and some places fell faster. So this argument is premised on two data points in a, in a uh, world that's a lot more complicated than that, but it's, it needs to be responded to. Good.
1: All right, so questions from the audience. I see the gentleman in the, in the back there with his hand raised. Yep,
2: you, sir. Uh, Kevin, I'm 74 and never been incarcerated, and I was tempted to ask you what's an app, but I decided (laughs) not to do that. Um, You have a unique experience on that panel. You've been on the Hill, Mm -hmm. and that's where we can make an enormous difference, at least in the federal system. Why hasn't it happened?
3: Well, I'm, I, I will say I'm as pessimistic as anybody else about reform right now. But keep in mind, criminal justice reform had about 70 votes in the Senate, 65 votes. It would have passed. It was an election year. And so McConnell wasn't going to split his conference. This was just politics. I mean, they didn't bring up anything in the Senate this year. So the support was there. You had You had Tom Cotton saying we don't have enough incarceration. And you had Jeff Sessions just towing the old line about, you know, any changes here could jeopardize the um, victories we've had. But, I mean, don't kid yourself. I mean, it's growing. I mean, the support for this is growing. And if anybody, let alone Hillary Clinton, if any Republican had won, we'd be still talking about the prospects for federal reform. It's just this climate with Sessions as AG and what Trump has said during the campaign, you know, are pessimistic, but I mean, make it pessimistic. But um, the fact that we didn't get it last year really was, I, I think, because of politics. But the sports there.
1: Sir, the gentleman over here on the left, my left.
5: Thank you. Good morning. My name is Martin Moulton. I was a Libertarian candidate in the district, and uh, when I talk to the public, I get lots of support for when I talk about criminal justice reform. It's just kind of Wondering why there's a disconnect between our public and our officials. But my, my question for Mr. Maurer is, uh, uh, do you think a private employer should have a right to look at every aspect of his, employer, his a potential employee's history before entrusting that person with you know, his, bus- his or her business and money or whatever aspect that that person's going to have to re- represent him or her to the public?
2: Well, oh, shoot. Sorry about that. I'm not a, a, an attorney let alone an employment attorney so uh, others here know more than I do uh, I think you know the main focus of attention in recent years certainly has been about the impact of a criminal conviction or a criminal record of any sort and the whether that is relevant uh, to the employer to the job at hand or so uh, you know there's no shortage of understanding that uh, that has kept many people out of jobs they were otherwise qualified for because Of a a past conviction. So I think the argument there, uh, you know, certainly uh, looking at an arrest that didn't lead to conviction, uh, I don't see any justification for that. Uh, Again, a couple of examples I gave, if the conviction is relevant to the job at hand and relatively recent, then I think it's not necessarily problematic, but uh, I think it's fair to say in the vast majority of cases, uh, the conviction doesn't meet all those uh, the, all those limits and therefore is very much uh, overdone when they look at that.
1: Peter, Kevin, any
2: thoughts on ban the box?
3: I don't have strong views on it. I know that I've seen studies that have come out the other way and said that employers or questioners will then substitute in other criteria they see for this. My own view is, as somebody who couldn't even get community service hours in Montgomery County, Maryland, because of my conviction, um, that as an employer, you should have have the right to ask anybody what you want to ask them. And so I, I think the idea that that should be banned. I think it's good that companies like Coke and Walmart are voluntarily giving that up. Um, I think that's a good sign. I think the culture needs to change. I think a law telling employers they can't ask what they want doesn't make sense because then you get into the interview and they say, what's this 10-year gap in your resume? Um, So I I don't think there's any way around it. So I get the impetus for it. I think the impetus is good. I think the cultural shift needs to happen. I, I think the law, the evidence is sketchy. Sir,
1: this gentleman right here in the second row. Thank you.
5: Uh, Carl Golovin, TyndaleToday.com, which has been placing a chapter a day of, of Tyndale's 1534 New Testament translation in the pages of the Washington Times for over the last year. Uh, I'm a retired criminal investigator, U.S. Customs, and my question ultimately is whether what is the spiritual dimension of our nature of law enforcement, justice, as it were, um, and whether there's an official level of crime that actually goes on sanctioned. Uh, To ask a question, I need to reference two texts for those listening, Operation Gladio by Dr. Paul L. Williams, and Rulers of Evil, subtitled Useful Knowledge About Governing Bodies by Frederick Tupper Saucy. Uh, They point towards literally as long as man has been around since Cain slew Abel, governing power and those who benefit from it have expanded through uh, (coughs) prompting hatred, fear, chaos within and among, uh, within populations and between populations. And... Operation Gladio points specifically to um, sanctioned trafficking in drugs at the highest levels through intelligence entities, uh, traceable probably to the opium wars uh, between Britain and China where the British won. They gained control of Hong Kong for the next 150 years. When did the British ever stop officially trafficking in opium? Even today, the U.S. Army defends poppy fields in Afghanistan. So... Christ mandated that we love one another, love our enemies, lead one another away from sin rather than use the uh, legal processes to demonize some and create an underclass that will, you know, flip hamburgers perhaps, uh, while those who have indulgences to officially traffic in in drugs run the world. So uh, what is the spiritual dimension of, of our system of crime?
1: Any thoughts on spiritual dimension of law enforcement or alternatively this uh, idea that uh, of official criminal culpability versus individual?
3: Well, I'm the last person who should be talking about (laughs) a spiritual view on this, but I'll say this, um, the idea that we do an eye for an eye is usually, you know, that's the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, the punishment, is usually... Uh, used to justify vengeful punishments. And it's actually just the opposite, which is what's so noxious about that argument, which is it's supposed to limit punishment and how severe we are with people. So when you see, like in the case I mentioned, somebody selling drugs for one month, a 30 year sentence is disproportionate to that. So, um, you know, I I don't know what, you know, different religions have different views on this. A lot of, uh, I know religious conservatives support criminal justice reform because they believe in giving people a second chance. Um, so, um, I'll I'll just leave it at that.
1: Uh, All the way in the back with the fashionable bow tie on the right.
6: I assume it's fashionable. Maybe 30 years ago or eight years ago. Uh, hi, I'm Frank Webb. I'm a criminal defense attorney in Virginia. Um, I have, a. I guess Ms. Haynes might be able to answer this question. So to what degree, Has anybody looked at um, victims' rights legislation that was passed? I'm assuming at the height of the drug war into the late 80s, early 90s, um, affected sentencing. Because in my own personal experience, I've seen relatively minor crimes, but who have a really aggrieved victim uh, be empowered to both testify, obviously, on the trial, but then testify on the sentencing and you have, say, someone who's never been convicted of a property crime be convicted of a property crime, and then because there's a, a sympathetic victim or a victim who just, you know, sells how hurt and upset they are, the judge just like hammers them with sentencing. And I feel like in, in, in crimes <laughs> where you have yeah. institutional victims, like the Apple Store, no one testifies and says like, oh, this is just the worst crime ever. But when you have someone whose car was broken into, um, they can really. Play up how hurt they are, and it, in in some weird ways, it, in my experience, it seems like it's been like revenge, rather than you know the the pros and cons of how long a, a person should serve a sentence so that they rejoin society. Thanks. Any thoughts on victims' rights legislation and
1: crime victim testimony in trial?
4: Um, that's that's a little hard considering that I'm a public defender, but. Um, And I really don't focus on victims' rights, but um, back in Nashville, I am part of a juvenile justice task force. And um, one of the things that one of the juvenile judges has talked about, Um, was I don't know if anybody's here is familiar with restorative justice and it is basically where you know when you do have those crimes where there is a victim involved is to before it even gets into the criminal justice system that you form a community um, form a group within the community where everybody can talk in a safe place and to talk to not only the person that committed the crime, but also the victim of the crime, um, for them to talk to one another and to try to see if there's something that can be done before the case proceeds into the criminal justice system. Now, if they can't, you know, agree on anything, then I think the plan is for the case to continue to the criminal justice system. But I do personally like the fact of, you know— victims and, you know, people who have alleged to have committed a crime to be able to come together. Because if we're talking about, you know, a juvenile, there may be a reason why a kid broke into a car, you know, they they may need lunch money, you know, may have been the fact that, you know, they don't have any guidance. There may be a number of things that we can do, you know, what I'm saying to talk to that kid and maybe like divert them to another program before we start putting them into the criminal justice system and started loading convictions up on them. And even when we're talking about adults, I think more people are more inclined to do it when it is juveniles versus when it is adults, simply because we have the whole issue of whether, you know, juveniles, whether their their mind is developed and whether they understand really that they're committing a crime versus adults. But I I personally I personally do like that. I mean, I I had my home broken into um had to call the police, but I mean, I would really never go to court and, like, try to prosecute this person because I probably figured that it was somebody who probably had a drug issue and probably needed some type of drug or alcohol treatment versus sending them to prison, you know, for five, ten years, and they're just sitting there wasting away and not getting the help that they need. So I think it just depends on really the situation that, you know, you're dealing with.
1: Uh, The woman in in the pink jacket right there.
7: I'm Shira Shenlin, a former United States district judge for 22 years in the Southern District of New York. And I really don't have a question. I just want to respond to the last question because I'm someone who listened to a lot of victim testimony at sentencing. So if I may. We'll have the
1: judge's privilege. You're, you're, okay. you're welcome. To- uh, okay. Just want
7: to respond. So there are victims and there are victims. Some victims came into court simply to have a chance to vent. And I politely listened, but it didn't affect the sentence because you try to sentence the offender and the offense, but not the collateral damage to the victim. It's fine that they're heard, and I certainly listened and got letters, but it didn't affect the sentence. But then there are vulnerable victims. And that's a different type of victim. It's a different class of victims. It's victims who were preyed on. It was really a part of the crime for the person to identify the most vulnerable people, the elderly or children. And then it affected the sentence. Then it became a factor. So I just wanted to explain that there are victims and there are victims.
1: Thank you, Judge. Uh, that's good when the when a question and answer gets applause uh, the, the woman in the back right uh, with the gray jacket yes ma'am you
7: hi Carla Howell with the libertarian Party and um, with regard to Obama's recent commutations I I'm interested in your opinions any of you on, on that and and I ask it in light of my bias which was my first exposure to the Um, to that opportunity was with libertarian candidate Harry Brown in 96 who said his first day in office as president he would uh, commute the sentence of any nonviolent criminal on day one and Obama obviously has waited like they typically do to the end of his term that aside um, do you see this as a breakthrough as a sign of relative progress in terms of willingness to commute sentences of nonviolent criminals?
3: I would say the reaction to the release has been, I mean, illuminating. Um, You know, for years, Mark's group and ours and others had said there were thousands and thousands of people serving excessive sentences for low-level crimes, and we couldn't win legislative reform. And now President Obama is releasing thousand people um, through his own power, and you're not hearing a huge Outcry. And I think that tells you that there is an acceptance that we've overdone it. So, yes, that he's used the political capital to do it. Yes, he waits for the second term. But the fact that he can do it and have so much cover from across the political spectrum, I think, is the reason to be optimistic for reform and is the most interesting thing about his doing it.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. And also, you know, it's, uh, we tend to forget again in the year of mass incarceration. Uh, uh, clemency commutations pardons used to be a very routine activity by governors and presidents. Uh, it was just sort of understood this was part of their uh, powers and part of their obligation too and You know in many states, you know uh, the night before Christmas, a governor would issue commutations to people who had good records in prison, that sort of thing and that That all uh, pretty much disappeared over the last several decades or so, and so it's only once again uh, coming out in significant numbers now. Uh, You know, I think as the president of the Justice Department have said repeatedly, uh, they want to increase the numbers, but it's not a substitute for sentencing reform, which has caused this problem in the first place. And they're still gonna leave office with tens of thousands of people serving excessive sentences nonetheless.
1: i take the gentleman
8: in the front row here. Herb Rose, um, this question is directed to Mr. Ring. Uh, I'm concerned about uh, several aspects of sentencing. Um, I think that uh, one, the public needs to be protected uh, from people committing certain types of crimes. Uh, But you mentioned in your discussion of incarceration the problem of infantilization. Infantilization? I don't use that word too often. Um, Do you believe that uh, if there is an indication of recidivism, I use that word more often, um, that the uh, length of the sentencing ought to be increased even if it's decreased for a first offense or perhaps even a second offense? I mean, are
3: you talking about at the moment of sentencing? Or what? what? If
8: if, um, there is an indication that a person has committed a number of crimes, uh, should their length of their sentence be increased with the later uh, commission of crimes as compared to an oh, sure. initial sure. Uh, commission of a crime?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I want a judge to take all that into account. And so uh, I, I don't argue that, you know, you know, a serial murderer, I'm worried about him being infantilized in prison. You know, I, I'm, I'm saying that um, in a mandatory sentencing world, the judge doesn't have discretion to consider all the factors that you'd want him or her to and we want that to happen. Repeat offenses, the nature of the offense, the victims, all that, I am fine with the judge taking all that into account. I'm just saying when you have low-level offenses um, or when you're thinking about sentencing, are you thinking about public safety and recidivism in the sense of these people are coming back? Because anyone short of getting a life sentence is coming out. And so I don't think there's enough attention paid to that because we're not exactly doing a lot to rehabilitate people when they're in. And even if you're in, there's not 20 years of programming you're getting. So, I mean, I was in a place where, the, you know, I took Jeopardy class in current events. I mean, this, you know, I, I didn't need a lot, but guys who did weren't getting it. But even if there were some good classes, that 10 years of it was going to be enough. And so they were already going to have trouble. And so I just think that that's, that's, that's what I'm really focused on is when it's easy to give these numbers out in widgets, five years, 10 years, and all the rest. But you have to realize what you're doing when you're putting somebody on the shelf for that long because they're coming back. And so what's the public safety benefit of that?
1: I think we have time for one question. Uh, Ma'am, the lady in the third row right there.
4: Um, My name is Howa, and I'm here with uh, Mr. Ring's organization, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, uh, with some of my colleagues. Uh, my question is for Ms. Haynes. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about what your experience was like uh, navigating reentry and, f- you know, applying for school and finding not just gainful employment but employment that is looked to, you know, by society as large as um, meaningful and important. Um, do you think that it helped that, of course, you know, you graduated before, um, you know, being incarcerated? Um, Did you call upon your contacts? I just would like to know a little bit more about what your unique experience was like um, navigating reentry. I think I had a very unique experience because, as I mentioned, three days after I was released, I had a job as a law clerk. And that was my attorney that represented me throughout my entire trial that hired me. Um, and I worked with him up until the time that I got my job at the public defender's office. So, and that was already kind of put in place even before I was released from prison that I was going to, you know, come and work with him because he just believed in me and, you know, and, and even when I was there, you know, I kind of did some research and helped out with my case some, um, but being in the halfway house and, you know, with other people that were looking for jobs, I think that. The re-entry portion is something that I think that we do overlook when we talk about, you know, um, criminal justice reform. Because, first of all, there is no rehabilitation in prison. Um, The facility where I was at, they came in and did a resume writing class and they taught you to write a chronological resume. That doesn't work when you've been in prison and when you have gaps in your employment. Um, There were no computer classes. There was nothing. And so you're sending people back out into the community who in the federal system, who've been there for maybe five, 10, sometimes 20 years, and they're not prepared to come back and to make a successful reentry back into the community. Um, in Nashville, we do have some organizations that do help with that, but it's not a lot. And so a lot of times people are placed back into the same communities and the same environment that they left. And then we wonder why the recidivism rate is so high, because we don't have the necessary tools that people need in order to make a successful transition. As far as school is concerned, yes, I had to answer that question about, you know, whether I had a drug conviction. Um, I think at the time when I had to answer that question, I think it was like, have you had a drug conviction within the past seven years? So, at the time when I was applying to do my master's and, and to do my LLM, it had been well over seven years. Um, I couldn't vote when I first came home. I had to wait until after I was done with my uh, supervised release. So, um, and, and there's just really not a lot of context there. Um you know, in the halfway house, everybody knows, like, where to go and look for jobs at and, you know, and who's offering the assistance and stuff like that. So everyone kind of goes to those places. But even with those places, their resources are pretty limited. Um, they just passed the Bay in the Box back in Nashville this year. And, you know, I, I agree with that concept um, because, you know, speaking from experience, I know that all people that are coming out of federal prison, they just want a chance to get, you know, a, a decent job and not be... You know, working at McDonald's or you know KFC or something like that. But um, I've heard from a lot of people, and, and even my clients, you know, on on the state level, it's it's really hard for people coming out of out of you know jails and prisons now.
1: Thank you. I'd like to once again thank our our panelists for this for this first panel of the day. Uh, we'll now have a fifteen minute break, uh, and uh, water is available in the winter garden out front. Uh, And restrooms are located on this level also uh, to the left of the elevators uh, on this lower level. Thank you, guys.